This is the Conduit Church Teaching Podcast. Thanks for joining us. It's our mission to be a conduit of Jesus to the community in front of us and the world around us, starting with the teaching of His Word. Enjoy the message. an unprecedented phenomenon in our culture at this time in history. There has never been more information so readily available right at our fingertips about everything from science to religion to the Bible to history to theology to even truth itself. So how do we wade through all of this information to get at what is actually true? There's a movement infiltrating the church called progressive Christianity that's bringing in false ideas about God, false ideas about who Jesus was and what his death and his resurrection accomplished, false ideas about the gospel, this good news that has been the focus of the Great Commission for the entire 2000 year history of Christianity. This movement seeks to change the church's ideas about some of these things. So suddenly the Bibles that once sat on our laps as cherished, inspired, authoritative sources for truth are now cast with suspicion. Uh, Questions are being asked like, did the historical narratives of the Old Testament actually happen? Did the people who wrote scripture really speak for God or were they just giving their best ideas about God uh, that they had access to in their times and places? And so for some, this Christianity has become an embarrassment. Suddenly the idea that Jesus died for my sins casts suspicion on God's character himself by portraying him as some kind of cosmic child abuser. This book is for any Christian who has encountered the ideas of progressive Christianity on their social media news feeds or in books and blog posts and podcasts and the red flags are flying, but they don't necessarily have language to interact with it. This book will give you language. This book is for the struggling Christian whose beliefs about God are under attack and they need resources. They don't know where to turn. This book is for Christian parents who have a child going through a process of doubt and deconstruction, or maybe they themselves are going through that process. I pray that as you walk through my journey with me as you read another gospel. I pray that God will use that as a resource in your life to help encourage you, to help strengthen your faith, and give you confidence that the Christianity that you believe in, the Jesus that you have put your faith in, is true and he's everything that he says he is. And that is Elisa Childers. I'm sorry, this is Elisa Childers. We're so uh, glad that you're here with us this morning, Elisa. Uh, For those of you that are watching online, we're super grateful. I know some of you guys are watching in living rooms. Charlie and Chris Smith, hope you're enjoying Couch Church this morning. Um, And for you that are with us, uh, Elisa has been around uh, Conduit for a long time. I've known Elisa for longer than that because she and I have a shared history in the music world. Um, For those of you that don't know, Elisa... Uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s, was uh, in a group called Zoe Girl. That's right, Kim Waskerman, woohoo in that. Um, and what's, uh, but, but in, in the years ensuing, uh, has spent her life's work uh, on 
just the foundation of the gospel itself and on truth. And uh, this book just represents one part of that. But my question, I guess, to just start off with was, how on earth did you go from being like Zoe girl, pop, Norman Miller, you know, the whole thing, to like one of the foremost uh, thought leaders inside of the, like, and I don't even know if you call this apologetics. I guess it is. Apologetics in it, but um, how did that happen? Like, what, what what in your Christian music world prepared you for that? Well, a lot happened <laughs> between the time <laughs> Zoe Girl ended. We decided to come off the road in about 2007 or eight, and we were all kind of getting married and having babies. And this was kind of like height of purity culture, so we were singing songs about abstinence, and it just kind of didn't make sense to have a nine-month pregnant belly singing <laughs> songs about abstinence anymore, so it's time to throw in the towel. Now, there's more to it than that, but... Uh, so we, you know, we were starting to have our own kids, and so after we came off the road, uh, my husband and I started attending a church in Middle Tennessee, just not far from, from here, and we loved it. We attended there for about eight months. And then after a while, the pastor invited me to be a part of what he described as a small uh, inner circle study and discussion group. And I was really excited because I wanted to go deep in my faith. I, wanted to, I always knew the Bible. I loved Jesus as long as I could remember, but I had never really studied any of the intellectual stuff. So I was really excited to do that. But um, long story short, the class wasn't what I thought it was. And essentially, uh, the pastor kind of let us know he was an agnostic. He called himself a hopeful agnostic. And so all the precious beliefs that I'd held about the gospel were under fire. Um, suspicion was cast on the Bible, the atonement, different things. And so it really threw me into a faith crisis uh, after we left the church. And so really, <laughs> how did it all happen is just, I, I was just fighting for my life, essentially. And the Lord led me to great apologetics resources and scholars and um, just some really great information that I studied for years, really. And, and so it was at the end of that that I, I wrote about it, my journey in, in this book. Yeah, and to put this in perspective, first of all, if I were to say the name of this church out loud, a lot of people in this room would know about it. This was a large church, um, 2,500 to 3,000 people. I learned later that uh, he used some evangelistic numbers, not only with his Bible, but also with his attendance. But anyway, um, but it was a church everybody knew about, and it was a church where this pastor was speaking in, in events and in uh, local devotionals for things. And, uh, and you, you said it sort of fast, but to back up, here's this guy that, and I listened to this guy, one of the best communicators I'd ever heard, and he introduces himself into this small group, uh, first meeting, as a hopeful agnostic. Like, where did that land? Did it hit you immediately that that was a problem? Well, yeah, so I had the immediate red flag, right? This pastor who preached these amazing sermons every Sunday used more scripture than almost any pastor I'd ever heard. Right. To say something like that was very jarring. Um, and of course, I had a red flag about it, but I just assumed it was my problem. You know, I just, I didn't want to be judgmental. I wanted to, you know, cut him some plaque. I'm, I'm not going to judge that. Maybe, you know, this really is a group where we can be honest about where we're at. And so I tried to just reserve judgment and not, you know, um, I guess, react too strongly about it. But yeah, it was, it was hugely destabilizing for a pastor that I had come to respect and trust over so many years to say something like that, for sure. Yeah, because I can remember, so I was down the road a little bit here in Franklin, and 
uh, had heard some of that was going on and I was still a little confused. And, uh, and so I actually began to listen to uh, some of his teachings on Sundays. I, uh, if you've been around me for any long and you were to look at my podcast list, you would wonder what in the world is wrong with me. Um, because I listen to things that, uh, people that feed me, but I'm also listening to things that I know I don't agree with because I learn from that. And I, my, my Amazon is very confused. Right, nobody like, would know how to market to the, you, the, right? Yeah, no, it's really just like, they have no... It's so do you a, find like, like when you get in those little ads, do you get like Rob Bell next to Charles Stanley? Yeah. Like, is it like... No, it's literally like, like the algorithm. Rob Bell, Brian McLaren, you know, maybe some Vody Bauckham, and, and then like, they're like, we don't know what's wrong with I'd her. go maybe to that conference. counseling, and then there's like Christian counseling <laughs> services. Yeah, I mean, because when you're reading and, and consuming to try to learn, I can see where those algorithms have no idea what to do with that. But I, as I began to learn and, and hear even more of what he was saying, it was like really, really bad theology communicated very well uh, can sound pretty compelling. But it was like almost like, I don't know if you guys remember about 20 years ago when Ron Paul was first on the scene. Right, and so I'm about to offend some of you. Also, don't, but but a Ron Paul speech, I'd be like, wow, yeah, that's awesome, perfect. Oh man, yeah, I'm totally in. And then, and then like the last ten percent was so crazy that I just couldn't get there. I'm like, whoa, wait, what? You said what? No, 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 that's not what I'm saying at all. And that felt like a sermon that I was hearing from this guy was like, yeah, yeah, I get that. That's it. Yeah, I love your neighbors and love you. Oh wait, whoa, 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 whoa. We're all saved, like universal Christ. What? That last ten percent was so nuts that it just didn't. But he had a real interesting way, and that's one of the reasons why I've invited Elisa this morning, okay? Because we're going through the book of Romans. Um, the very first time I taught through the book of Romans has been about 10 years ago, which was when this was actually unfolding, and I was just kind of connecting those dots now. And one of uh, the families in our church, who I love dearly, a, a guy that I've known for years, um, sent me a lovely email. I was in Haiti in a hammock or somewhere, I don't know. And it was one of those Dear John letters, you know, hey, uh, you know, it's not you, it's me. Um, I'm leaving your church. But it was because you're teaching through the book of Romans. And it was offensive. And it took me a minute to catch up to what he was saying. And I did, that was like, to me, like, okay, there's something happening here that's different than what I was aware of. Um, and, and it, may, it almost felt like our job was harder. Like back then it felt like if you could just, you know, talk about Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens. And, but the thing is, is when it comes to this, and you hear me use the word progressive theology or progressive Christianity, you maybe have never heard it before, but here's the thing. The, sometimes the it's almost true is way worse than way off true because you can swallow that and think, oh, that sounded great. And then you just sort of swallow the rest of it. And I've invited Elisa this morning because one of the things in the progressive Christian movement, and if some of you are in that movement or, you know, before you walk out and, and get mad at me, at least sit for a little bit um, and listen and hear, because I'm not, I'm not aiming this at anybody. I'm not pointing this at anybody. I just want to share with what I think the truth is. But the thing that, one of the things that I notice about everyone from Rob Bell to Brian McLaren, uh, at some point they have some blog about how much they hate Romans. It's just, a, it's just a common thing. If you've fallen for any length of time, Romans will come up and Paul will come up as somebody that they don't like. And Elisa, in your experience, uh, what the heck? Like, why do they hate Romans so bad? Well, let me lay a foundation for that a little bit. And in, in one thing we have to acknowledge is that in progressive Christianity, there's a broad spectrum of beliefs that fall under that umbrella. And the movement itself is very fluid. 
So when I analyze the movement, I'm analyzing the books and the podcasts and the blog posts of the thought leaders of the movement who tend to be pretty united on their view of the Bible. That doesn't mean you're not going to meet a progressive Christian that has a different view. But in my research, the dominant view in progressive Christianity of the Bible is that it's primarily a book that humans wrote about God, not so much what Christians have historically believed, which would be a divinely inspired book. Now, they'll use the phrase divinely inspired, um, but they don't, they mean a different thing by that. But it's, it's primarily historically we viewed it, this is like the divine inspired word of God that's authoritative for our lives. We are compelled to obey God's word. This is God's word. And so in progressive Christianity, it's not really viewed that way. Biblical authority is not uh, something that is really talked about a lot or um, accepted. So they look back at people like Paul who wrote uh, sections of scripture and they say, well, Paul was just doing his best to understand God in the time and place in which he lived. So, I mean, you're free to disagree with Paul in progressive Christianity. And so I think we have to start there. There's sort of this, this narrative arc of, you know, they really like Jesus, they don't really like Paul very much. And um, so I think the reason that specifically Romans, but maybe all of Paul's letters are, are so despised in, in the movement is because especially Romans, it just completely refutes the progressive Christian narrative, which is essentially that you're not separated from God. Your sins don't separate you from God. You just need to realize how inherently beloved you are and how united with God you already are. Um, and, and so any talk of the blood of Jesus cleansing us from our sin or being a price that was paid, uh, you know, I'm thinking of the scripture that says, I don't think it's in Romans, but it says you were bought with a price. You know, these yeah. are the kinds of ideas that kind of run counter to the general idea of progressive Christian theology when it comes to the cross. And so Romans, especially Romans 4 and 5, is... Uh, oh, they don't like that at yeah. all, yeah. I remember, um, and you know what I'm just going to say his name. Uh, his name is Stan Mitchell. He pastored a church called Grace Point in town. It's no longer, I mean, it's a shadow of its former self. But one of the things that Stan had taught was that, um, I remember this vividly, that there's five ways that God speaks to us. And if you did this, or if you developed this after your course, but he speaks to us through uh, our hearts. He speaks to us through each other. He speaks to us through the Bible. He speaks to us through culture. And he speaks to us through history. And if any one of the three of those disagree with the other two, then those three are what we would go with. They're four out of five. And so what he would say was that Romans, this was... Uh, this is the word of God on that one, but if history is now teaching us differently and if culture is saying differently, then those come together to overrule what God wrote in the Bible with it. And probably one of the main reasons it's hard to even, because it's such a fluid movement, it feels a lot like, like nailing jello to a wall. Um, it just won't stick, is that because there, even at the conferences that are happening right now, there's no real agreement as to what it is. And so everybody's kind of jockeying to make it. And so they keep having like, even progressive have church splits, right? Because eventually they can't agree on uh, their theology. And so I'm actually, there's some hope I take in that, that those churches cannot hold together. Because um, honestly, if, if, I mean, let's be honest. If Jesus did not resurrect from the dead, okay? If, if I can't trust the words of Jesus from here, let's go home. Let's get jobs. I can make a whole lot more money, right? <laughs> And so you can't do that for very long before people in the audience are going, well, that's a, this is why am I here again? I got stuff to do, you know? Uh, so I'm hopeful that the movement, quote unquote, can't hold together. But on, online, it certainly gained a lot of traction. And that's where I think you uh, and your ministry has been incredibly important. 
because Elisa uh, is engaging them on their home turf, engaging them on the which is not an easy place if you've been on the internet, not an easy place to engage in uh, controversial conversations. But one of the things that I think that Romans is so, oh, I know it is, it's so important, is that the, the gospel saved right by faith, saved by, by faith, by grace, is in Romans. But the problem I think that the progressives have is that that means I actually need to be saved from something. Um, and so it's like I'm hanging on to every word of Romans because I recognize myself in Romans 1. I recognize myself in Romans 2. But I think it might beg the question, and a very important one uh, right now, like what is the gospel? Like when I say the gospel, I, I grew up in a world where the gospel meant that I was going to be uh, healthy and wealthy and rich and prosperous. And, and at some point I looked around and realized... I'm the only guy who's healthy, wealthy, rich, and prosperous is the guy that I'm giving my money to. So, so somewhere in there, that wasn't really working out for me, and, and there were other versions. But, like, but what is the gospel? Yeah. At least, I mean, could you sum it up? Yeah, and I think this is a question that every Christian should, we should ask ourselves this question every day. We, we should preach the gospel to ourselves every day. Uh, but it can be kind of a tough question because there's going to bring different there're going to be different nuances people bring to it but essentially i like the the framework of looking at it as the narrative arc of god's redemptive acts throughout history right so the the gospel is actually good news it's the good what is this message it's good news what is it well it's the narrative arc of god's redemptive acts throughout history which we can trace through uh, creation, fall, redemption and then restoration so essentially the christian gospel is that god created the world and he called it good and he created humans in his image. But he's also a God of love. And so for love to actually exist and be possible, there has to be freedom to choose, right? Because you can program people to behave a certain way, but that wouldn't be love. But he is love, and he wanted us to be able to love. So he gave us a choice. And we chose to do it our own way. We rebelled against him. And this initiated to sin and death into the world. And now we have a problem because God is holy, which we want. We want a holy God because his holiness means he can have no union with sin. And this is the guy that's building the kingdom that's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. This is, we want that kingdom to not have evil in it. But the problem is, is that he can't have unity with sin, but we're sinners. So that creates a chasm, a separation. But, you know, that didn't take God by surprise in his sovereignty. The Bible says the lamb was slain from the foundation of the, of the world. So this was always, always the plan. God incarnates, steps into his own creation, God in flesh, lives a perfectly sinless life in our place, takes our sins upon himself so that for all those who trust in him, they can be in that kingdom forever where evil will not be. And for those who reject him, for those who don't want to be in his presence forever, uh, he will give them what they want as well. And I call hell like a, an evil quarantine. It's quarantines evil away from this good kingdom that he's building. And so everybody has a choice of, of what they want to do with that. But essentially, that's the, the sort of flyover version of the gospel. But in progressive Christianity, it's almost on every single point. There's denials, which actually I think is an important point to bring up. It is like nailing jello to a wall. Because if you try to look at it like, what do they believe? You're going to go in a hundred directions. What you want to look at is what they deny. Because they're mm, that's very really united good. in the denials. That's actually really good. Because that... I do find myself um, like like it's like it's like whack a mole like would you this one believes this and this one believes I don't even know and and then sometimes they say things like you know when you hear 
um, Richard Rohr or even lately Michael Gunger when he tweets the, uh, the universal Christ, that we, I am Christ, that Buddha is Christ. And I'm, and I'm looking at that going, what does that even mean? That doesn't mean anything. It's like a Goo Goo Dolls song. Like it sounds really beautiful, but I don't know what that means. Like that doesn't mean anything. And trying to nail it down, and I've had some conversations where I, you know, with friends, and, I, and these are people that I love, and I don't mean to be like pejorative to them because, you know, whatever, but I love them. But I'm definitely, there's a, 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 like a 20 minutes into a conversation where I'm like, I literally have no idea what you just said. Like when you start talking about the universal Christ and the universalness of that I'm Christ and you're Christ and this chair is Christ and that uh, Jesus didn't literally raise from the dead, which is something that guys like Rohr have been saying a lot of, that he didn't just, we don't know if he rose from the dead, but what we know now is that this universal Christ is all of us now and that's the resurrection story. And, um, and by the way, if you read the books back in the day, like Everything Belongs, uh, some of those books in his earlier, he would not have said that outright like that, but that's what he meant by it. And only, I guess, in his older age now, when he knows he's, uh, he's almost done anyway, he's finally had the courage to say it out loud. Because some of these guys, I'm going to say this, some of these guys have believed this the whole time. Uh, but they would say things like, but I'm using these words to mean something different about them so that I can redeem the word. And they say that like that's noble. That's called deception. That's lying to me. So to, to think that you could somehow which is something that happened in the church you're talking about, was a guy that suddenly realizes, he thinks, I have suddenly discovered something that Christians for 2,000 years have missed. Mm -hmm. Somehow all of these theologians from Spurgeon to Jesus himself did not know this, but now I know it. And I am wise enough and smart enough that I can change these 2,500 people and the whole world by bringing on this new theology. That's called narcissism. That's not theology. And so when we talk about it, like, I don't mean to sound crunchy. Like I know you sound, I sound like I'm like walking on raked leaves right now because I'm real crunchy, but I, I don't mean to sound crunchy, but, but this stuff is important. Well, and I think too, if I could comment on the universal Christ for a second, because this is a, an idea that's really sweeping up a lot of uh, Christians. And you, know, you mentioned it's like nailing jello to a wall. Well, the thing with something like the universal Christ, this is a book written by Richard Rohr, that um, when you're seeing people on social media say things like, like Michael Gunger, Buddha was Christ, Muhammad was Christ, Jesus was Christ, we are the body of Christ. When you see things like that, like it sounds like, wait, what? <laughs> but that's because we have the narrative filter. We're filtering all that through that narrative arc I just explained. But what we have to understand is somebody, and this is why I think Richard Rohr is actually possibly the most dangerous of the progressive Christian teachers because he's not just deconstructing Christianity, he deconstructs it, but then he gives you, he builds back an entire worldview, a whole different narrative arc to put in its place. So when all of those words are being used in that world, it makes perfect sense and it's a cohesive thing within itself. But if you're still looking at it from this narrative, it's, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But, and it's interesting too, because with Richard Rohr, it's, it's such a play on words. And this is something we see in Mormonism and in Jehovah's Witness, where they'll use a lot of the same words. And I, you kind of gave a nod to that a moment ago. Like Richard Rohr still, as far as I understand, says that he affirms the literal resurrection. And he'll even say it like it's kind of like cute. Like, oh, I know, I'm just so old fashioned. But then you read Universal Christ and you see what he means by literal resurrection. And he doesn't mean what we have meant for 2000, he doesn't mean Jesus' body came out of the grave. Uh, and so it, it's, it's incredibly confusing for people, especially people who are used to words like Trinity, incarnation, 
uh, Christ being used with certain definitions, and when all of those definitions are changed and plugged into an entirely different worldview, it can be very confusing. Yeah, I mean, when you hear those words, like uh, he would use the words redemption, uh, and, but he meant something completely different. He would talk of Jesus dying, but not for the atonement of our sins. In fact, he's written a piece that says Jesus did not die for your sins. He yeah, finally he says there was no, uh, there was no atonement necessary yeah. for you. He's, he's been very explicit about that. Yeah. And, I, and I, I guess that why I feel this is so important is the deception is so um, intentional and pervasive that when you think about it again, so any one of these people we've mentioned, and there are plenty more out there that are now suddenly onto this thing that are saying that we now know new, because the idea of progressive Christianity really just simply means that we've progressed, and now we know more than Paul knows, and so we have this new revelation. That is where Mormonism has come from. That is where Islam has come from. It's where Jehovah's Witnesses has come from, is that somebody out there had this vision or this dream or this idea that I know better, and I somehow have got this new revelation that everyone else has missed. They're called cults, and they're called cults for a reason. And much of what we're seeing in secular humanism, by the way, is just a secular version of a cult. Uh, detach God from it, but attach secular in it. It still becomes saved by works. It still becomes you're trying to be, you know, in, in the woke toast movement right now. If I don't obey these rules that I that keep changing on me, then I am now out of it. It's just another. It's just a cult without God attached to it. And the beautiful thing about understanding what the gospel m- means literally. Look, nobody in sub-Saharan Africa is debating whether or not they are a sinner or not. Um, I, I, I've, we've been there. Some, many of you all have been there. Like, when I say that God's word and, and the Bible says this, they're not like immediately rejecting it because they don't believe in the Bible or God, as God's word. But in our culture, Elisa, that has changed significantly. Yeah. Uh, if I say the Bible says, statistically speaking, the vast majority of Americans would not look at this as an authority, as something that just because the Bible said it, that I need to believe it. And would you speak to that, like in the ministry that you're doing right now, and how that is even influencing your ministry uh, and what you're doing? Well, for me, when I was in this class, one of the main things under, I guess you could say, attack, to use, you know, big language like that, but it was the Bible. It was the reliability of the Bible. Um, you know, there was this idea that, hey, we can't even really know what was written in the first century because uh, we don't even have an accurate copy of what they wrote. And, and even if we do, you know, what these guys represented Christianity in its infancy, like a baby just learning to crawl before it walks. So, you know, they didn't necessarily get everything right. And I think that you make such a good point about when there's affluence, Um, these kinds of ideas come out of, honestly, can we just call it what it is? It's rich, white, affluent um, theology. It's, in fact, theologically, the underpinnings of progressive Christianity come out of Germany in the late 1800s, the theological liberalism. And, you know, it's... It's a very affluent movement, but there's already apologetic. They, they have their apologetic with that because in Richard Rohr's Universal Christ, he'll even, he'll pause for a moment and say, like, I know this all sounds different, and, you know, but people in places where, you know, or, or in times past when they needed the redemption story, they needed that because they needed hope that the next world would be better than this one. 
but now, you know, we, we can settle into this universal Christ. Be, and he's almost admitting, really, that we're affluent enough that we don't need. Uh, I don't think he realizes that. But um, I don't think they do realize it. Like the, and I've had some amazing conversations. Because when we talk about, uh, especially in Christian music, there's been a lot of uh, people that we had worked with over the years or colleagues that are that have in this world. And, and when I have conversations with them, and I'm basically saying, hey, if you're looking for white privilege, which you're accusing yes. me of, right. look in the mirror. Because my brothers and sisters in Africa are not looking for you to come over here and lecture them on their morals and their, you know, in Honduras, right? They're not looking for that. They're, they're like, have you lost your ever-loving minds? I remember having some conversations with some of these guys, because if you were to travel the world right now, uh, maybe in a few months, I don't know. Um, I mean, Ian just got back from India, so maybe, but you get to some of these international airports and what you see is CNN blaring in these international airports around the world. Uh, so that's what they think is going on in America. Because that's all they see, and they think we've all, and so they're looking at us like, they've lost their minds. And I want to scream, hey, nobody's watching Don Lemon. It's okay. Like, it's like there's hardly any of us here. But they don't know that that's what they think is happening. But from a secular worldview, that's what's happening. And so for Christianity to try to somehow bootstrap and reverse engineer ourselves onto a culture, uh, you know, I, I, I vividly remember being in the Dominican just a few years ago. And I was there with Bob and Dana Gresh, and we were doing a, um, a thing about uh, just a conference and helping with sex trafficking and how the churches could get involved. And the reason we were doing it was the presidential administration at that time had told them in the Dominican that unless you change your definition of marriage, we are going to withhold funding from you in helping to fight uh, sex trafficking here in the Dominican. And praise God for the, uh, the government of the Dominican Republic. They said, keep your money. Um, and so we were there uh, because the churches are like, we're not going to sell our soul for 30 pieces of silver to be lectured. And again, they're feeling lectured with our privilege to come in and tell them how to handle their morals when they're looking at the Bible. And so, well, even look at the Methodist split, you know, yes. that, that's going on. It's you have all the progressive, it was the African bishops that fought that. Yeah, I was so proud because it was a Rwandan bishop that told them to, uh, we will not sell our souls for 30 pieces of silver. Uh, speaking to Adam, the guy, this Methodist pastor in Kansas City of a very large church who said, well, maybe we should stop sending our money to Africa if they're not going to vote like us. And he said, keep your money. Uh, we're not selling our souls. So I was very proud of them. And the, gang, this is the thing, what I would say for us. If you're new here, we're, not, we're looking for truth. And I would rather be divided over truth than united around a lie. What is the truth? And let the chips fall where they may. And my friend Fouad, I, I may or may not be here today. Uh, is that you, Fouad? Yeah, there you are. Uh, working in the United States, re reaching Muslims in the United States. And what I find fascinating, Fouad, is how many of the conversations that we're having here, actually the same kind of conversations you guys have been having with Muslims for 40 years. Because a Muslim doesn't recognize this as God's word. A Muslim doesn't recognize Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. And so, like when you read uh, Nabil Koresh's book,
book, which I can't remember the name of all of a sudden. Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. It's, it's, it's like Josh McDowell could have written it because it's the same arguments that they're using in Islam that we're using here. And so uh, the work here is, is not just to try to... Um, for me, it's not that we're over here trying to just pull back atheists back into the fold. It's literally trying to say, this is what the truth is and let the truth stand where it stands. And for us to be protected into the future, because there are bloggers that are getting big platforms right now. Do you want to say some names? I mean, is it? Yeah, and I'll say something about saying names. You know, to, to tell you and to identify who some of these leaders are is the motivation from us, and I'm pretty sure I can speak for Darren on this too, is not to wave our finger at someone and condemn right. them to hell. That's not, the point though is that they're, they're putting their ideas out there and their ideas are being bought by millions of people. And so it, we have to know who they are, right? We have to, and it's fair game, you know? They'll, they, they, they say name my, my names, name, so, yeah. <laughs> you know, and they can criticize my ideas too. It's when you, when I, like I put a book out into the world and I expect there to be pushback on it from people who disagree with it. That just comes with the territory when you do it publicly. So that's why we say the names. And I also personally, it's just a personal thing I have. I don't say names unless it's somebody that I am praying for. And I'll, I'll go out and walk in, in my little trail and I'll pray for the progressive leaders that I'm reading their books and interacting with. Um, so with that said, uh, you know, some have already been named. I, I think we cannot, we cannot over... Uh, exaggerate the influence of Richard Rohr. Richard Rohr is a Franciscan friar who has uh, been teaching this universal Christ theology and it's being swallowed up by virtually every progressive Christian leader that I followed. I, I will very often, when I think of somebody, I'll Google their name along with his and, you, and every single time you will find either a tweet singing Richard Rohr's praises or an endorsement or something along those lines. And so he would be the, the main influencer, I think, right now in that movement. But, you know, of course, you have the early emergent guys like Doug Padgett, uh, Brian McLaren, uh, Tony Jones. Uh, there's Nadia Boltz-Weber, Jen Hatmaker. Um, there's the Reformation Project, which is Matthew Vines. If you want an idea of sort of who is leading the movement as it, because it's always changing, it's progressing, it's, it's, you know, it's fluid, it's going to change. Um, but you can go to uh, Google the Evolving Faith Conference. It's a progressive conference, and pretty much anybody that's involved in that is at least going to be on the insider periphery of the of the movement. Uh, Evolving Faith Conference. Yeah. We just want. I, I bet we've said probably forty words, titles, whatever this morning that maybe half or more of you have never heard in your life. And in a, in a way, I'm actually really glad for you. Because it's not on your radar screen, right? Bob and Carol, I don't know what you're talking about. But let me tell you who knows what we're talking about. Your grandkids. Your millennial adult children know. And for us to not know, in one hand, it's like, how do we possibly keep up? There's just so much out there. How do we ever keep up with all of this? But these are things that for us to know, uh, for the protection of our own children, for you young parents, for the protection of your, of your hearts, for you young moms that are reading blogs and, and, and having stuff shared and content with you to know that th this is what they're sharing with us. And that, you know, hey, I'm, I'm with Elisa. These are, some of these, actually a lot of them, are, are friends of mine. I talk to them on the phone. We text each other. Like, these are friends. And it's, 
it's heartbreaking. I mean, Ian, I know that some of your, our mutual friends, like this is a part of a journey that I'm like, I never thought that we would be here. Man, I'm telling you what, when we were first in the Christian music world, the only question we really didn't know was, hey, can they sing and um, write songs and talent? Because we just all sort of had this assumption, rightfully so, that we all had an agreement on the orthodoxy of what the word of God was. Now, hey, did some of them pray in tongues and some of them were reformed or some of them were Rich Mullins, you know, but, um, which, which was his own thing. But we at least all could agree around this certain thing and now it's a whole different world. I mean, I know that um, for, you may not even know this if you're new to the church, but our church was actually born out of me starting a Bible study that was mostly targeted to young musicians because in the early 2000s, by that point, I had already had artists that, uh, had grown up in the seeker-sensitive movement. And uh, if you don't know what that means, I just meant that every Sunday is a huge event and we're gonna rock and roll and smoke and lights and attract and, and we'll get to discipleship eventually, um, which didn't really happen for the most part. And so I ended up with musicians and artists who didn't know the difference between Jonah and Noah. And, you know, and you've got somebody like Greg Laurie saying, yeah, Darren, I want him to bring the gospel. And I'm like, nope, you don't. Uh, you want them to shut up and sing because they don't know the gospel. This group didn't or that didn't. And, um, but I actually met a young group called Cutlass who had come out of this Bible church, a Calvary Chapel in the middle of nowhere, Oregon, and they were so different because they knew the Bible frontwards and backwards. I'm like, wait, how do you know that? Like, how do you? And that to me spoke, okay, well, I can be part of the problem or I can be part of the solution. And so we just started this little Bible study and all it was was me going through the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, on Tuesday nights and artists and bass players and Starbucks baristas and we didn't care. But that was what it was born out of and I've seen the fruit over the last 20 years of the importance of how if you go through God's word, God's word goes through you and you are changed from the inside out. And that is why we will always as long as I have anything to say about this, this is what we're building our foundation on is God's word in the Bible. Elisa, um, I do have one question for you that, I mean, you've poured thousands of hours of your life into this. Late nights, early mornings, you get kids you know, you got a husband on the road, her husband uh, still, I don't know, he's on with Scott or McCreary or somewhere playing drums. He, she's like, has, she has stuff to do. Maybe I'll put it that way. She's not looking for something to do. So why on earth are you doing this? Why is this, you're not making money on this. Like this, is not, this wasn't a career choice for you. Why was this so important to you? Well, for me, it was life and death. It was my own soul. I, I found myself in a situation where I had been intellectually persuaded that what my heart believed was not true. And it was a, it was a tormenting place to be in. It was utter torment. And so now I'm thankful for my hippie parents because I grew up with parents that questioned things, you know. Uh, I, I never was told as a child, or I, I never perceived that I have to believe everything the guy in the pulpit says. I have to test it against scripture. I have to test it against reality. And, uh, you know, I don't have to agree. I, I have to make sure it's true. And so when this pastor had kind of persuaded me and just really just put me in that faith crisis, 
I knew that somewhere there was someone, I knew there was a reason Christianity has meant something for 2,000 years. Surely, there couldn't just be some guy come along in Nashville 2,000 <laughs> years later and figure out that, oh, by the way, guys, oopsie. You know, I knew there had to be information out there. I didn't know anybody who had those answers. I didn't. I didn't know any Christians in my life who knew how to answer what he was saying. Um, and so for me, I just knew that if the gospel wasn't true, that I was doomed because I know that I'm a sinner. Maybe I'm just a really bad person. I don't know. I mean, I just remember sitting in class one day and the pastor saying, now, if, you know, if we didn't need salvation or something, would you, if God didn't exist, would you all still be basically good? Wouldn't you all still be good? And I was the only one in the class. I was like, no, no, I would not do good things. I wouldn't, I would, you know, I probably wouldn't hurt anybody, but I mean, I'd figure out ways to rob big corporations of just a little bit at a time and live a comfortable life. Why would I, why not? Yeah, why yeah. wouldn't I do that? Um, I don't know. So either I was the only honest one or I'm just the worst one. I don't know. But I knew I needed a savior. I knew that I, I know what I've been forgiven for. I know what the Lord has redeemed me from. And for that to just vanish, um, I, I, I just wasn't going to go down without a fight for that. And so for years I studied and one question would open up 10 more. And so at the end of it, when I was settled, I wasn't going to write a book or do a blog. Sorry. I wasn't going to do any of that. Um, but I, I went to a little apologetics training and was encouraged by some apologists that, you know, because I thought, well, you guys are doing all that. I don't need to do it because somebody can just go to crossexamine.org or whatever. And they were like, no, because you can reach people we can't reach with, you yes. know, the same message. And so uh, the Lord has just grown it into this. But it's thrilling to get to maybe help somebody else who might be going through that same kind of thing. And that's, that's been such a blessing. Yeah. Well, I know that our church has been personally blessed and affected by what you've done. Uh, starting a few years ago, Elisa came in and she would spend a month with our teenagers over in the, back when we just had the other room. Um, she has invested, she was here uh, before, has spoken into our young people's lives. Um, and this book, which she forgot to bring with her this morning, this is why, here's why I had a job. This is why I was an artist manager for. Uh, yeah, we need people for those things. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I used to tell the, my, my staff, like, that is, because, like, Elisa not being able to remember her books, that is not an interruption of your work. That is your work. <laughs> like, if she could remember your, her books, she wouldn't need a manager. So anyway, um, but uh, she wasn't able to bring them with uh, her this morning, but on Amazon, uh, you can get this. I've read it. Uh, it's incredible. It's a great resource. I encourage everyone to take one home. And a fun you. little story, just for you guys, at Conduit, chapter eight tells the story of me teaching an apologetics class, uh, or maybe it's nine, I think it's eight. Yes, so chapter eight opens with the line, who wants to start a new religion? I asked a feisty group of teenagers during week three of a six-week apologetics class I was teaching to their youth group. That was Conduit Youth Group. That's why that it sounded so familiar. Conduit. Feisty, was that the word? They were feisty, yeah. they were. And you know why? They were feisty, because I remember after, maybe it was the second year, um, there were some letters written anonymously, like left on the stage, that were feisty from young girls, but they weren't mean or bad girls. They were just hurting, and I realized this is more important than ever, and we don't even know it. It's happening right under our noses. Uh, and that was, 
about gender, as I recall, one of them. And it was like four or five years ago. So what we're experiencing now didn't just start. This has been happening for years. And so Elisa's work has affected our church. And I've told you, but, you know, when we put in this system here, this is, if you guys want to come in, do your own conferences, we will, we stand ready to serve however we can to build a, a platform to get, because the work that you're doing uh, is incredibly important and meaningful and meeting them on their own uh, in the internet where it's happening, which is not easy. If you've been on the internet and said anything, you know that you can get you know, ripped down real quick. Uh, and Elisa has. Anything you would leave us with? Well, I think what I might leave you with is it can sometimes feel overwhelming to hear about a movement that's all this, like what is happening? And I, you don't actually have to go learn everything there is to know about progressive Christianity. Um, if there's somebody in your life, you may want to, so that you can have a, an, you know, intelligent conversation with them. But just as a Christian, you, you need to just, you need to know the real thing and you need to know why you believe it's the real thing. It's not enough to just say, well, because I was that person who was like, as long as the Bible says it, I'm going to live. I mean, I met atheists. I met all kinds of people growing up doing street ministry and stuff. None of that rattled me. But when a pastor was able to convince me that actually that's not what was actually written, which, by the way, is not true, and I've got lots of podcasts and there's a whole chapter on the book in it about that. But, um, you know, I, I thought, well, my whole worldview just crumbled right in front of my eyes. We have to know why we believe the Bible is the Word of God. Why do we, you know, ask yourself, can you answer? If somebody said to you, how do we know we got the right books of the Bible? You know, ha hasn't it been changed? Aren't there a lot of contradictions in it? Aren't, aren't there a lot of mistakes in the manuscripts? Like, every Christian today needs to be able to answer that stuff. Not that that is the gospel, but as we say in apologetics, what answering some of those questions can do is remove obstacles that are standing in front of people's eyes to be able to see the gospel. So know the real thing, and then you'll know the counterfeit, and you'll know why you believe that too. Yeah. And I would add this one thing, and that is, if not us, who? Um, Marshall Foster's with us this morning and Marshall wrote a book called The American Covenant and he goes all the way back in history and shows how very purposeful specific sections of society, Marxism, had infiltrated in our education system long ago. This has been a long game for Satan. Uh, there are uh, David and I think David and Helen Smallbone are here but the, the Smallbone family with, um, with Rebecca, with what's happening with for king and country out there like you can they're continuing to take the truth on the into the name like this this is important that we are out there right now with the truth in the culture but we can't just leave it to the authors and to the performers and to the apologists this is all of us you've got grandkids you've got kids um I asked Elisa, I said, hey, I asked about deconstruction in our church about a month ago and I asked if anybody was aware of it to raise their hand and maybe like 10% of us rose our hands. And she said, that happens everywhere I go. But when I go to a university and I ask about deconstruction, almost 90% of the people raise their hands. Younger groups, sorry, younger uh, groups raise their hands. And so it's, it's, I'm here to teach you some things this morning that you didn't know before and not to scare you at all but to awaken you. You know, one of the things about a conductor in an orchestra is they don't play a note. All they do is awaken the possibility of what can happen if a bunch of musicians work together for a common vision and mission. And that's all I'm here to do is just I want to awaken the possibility in you this morning of what can happen 
if we engage in our own hearts and in our own minds. And one way to do that, Elisa didn't tell me to do this, uh, this is my artist manager coming out, is this book. But even if you don't get the book, her site, I use her site regularly. Uh, so often I'm thinking, okay, well, so-and-so just said something crazy, and I think, well, I'll just give Elisa a day. She'll have a great, she'll say something super thoughtful and loving, and I'll just, that's what I'll, and she's been great for that. So if you would follow Elisa on social media, follow Elisa on her uh, website, share her content. Uh, the world needs more of what she has, uh, what God has trusted her with. So Elisa, thank you for being with us this morning. We're super grateful. God bless you. If you would stand, I would love to pray for you and then dismiss. Heavenly Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you for the prophets that you were raising up of truth, that are speaking truth, that are singing truth, that are writing truth. And Lord, would you awaken the possibilities in even every one of our own hearts to, uh, that this gospel would become alive in all of us. Lord, show us each our own way and our own role. And there's a lot in the world going on, but this, uh, the very foundation of what we believe the gospel is, uh, is the foundation of it all. Would you uh, speak to us in that way today? It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.